Now the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. My name's Greg Knapp. Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. I'm filling in for Greg Columbus, and we're bringing in David French, author for National Review, also a Time columnist. David, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing well. I'm afraid that the uh, listeners are being treated to an all-substitute version of the Three Martini Lunch today. It's like uh, tuning into a game and seeing the bench guys starting. Yeah, and sometimes the substitute teachers just let everything go crazy. So we're going to have to <laughs> really try to keep the chaos to a minimum. And hey, if we don't sound as well as you or as good as you're used to, excuse me, then um, it may be a five martini lunch for you. That's that always. <laughs> cool. All right, let's uh, let's jump into what the big news is. Right, Thursday, the big stuff is coming. The Mueller report is coming out, and and we've had people on the left go crazy on this, David, of trying to say that. A.G. Barr is a, an agent for Trump and he's hiding things and he does. Well, he's also going by this thing called the law with grand well, Yeah, we'll right? see about that. We'll see about that. I mean, look, um, I'm I'm not the most I'm not entirely trusting that this that the redactions are going to all be perfect and appropriate. And I don't think any American should no, no, be no, entirely no. trusting. Yeah. I'm simply saying that it takes a little time was all I was saying, because I totally agree. I don't like a lot of things that have been redacted during this whole investigation. Oh, yes. And, and I'm, I'm with you. I want the as most transparency as possible. The only redactions that really by law should be there, right, are ones that could harm people in grand jury testimony that don't have the right to defend themselves in court. Right. I mean, we don't want to throw out innocent people. Right. Well, there's there's certainly laws applicable to grand jury information and you can you can actually seek permission from courts for relief from those laws and I don't know that that has been done but yeah I, I think what's going to be very interesting to see there's going to be a few things that'll be interesting to see one is what are how extensive are the redactions we've seen a lot of documents released in the course of this you know year now years long controversy that are just you know acres of blank space yeah (laughs) acres of of dark lines and so when you look at that everyone's left trying to you you know using their wildest imaginations to fill in the blanks and i think you know the one thing that's promising is that the attorney general has said that he wants to make to be as transparent as he can he has said that his goal is to be as transparent as possible and even to the extent that we're going to get some apparently i mean if the reports are correct we're going to get some guidance as to why any given redaction was made. So there's going to be some color coded uh, redactions so that, you know, if, if something was redacted because of, you know, national security and classification concerns or was redacted because of grand jury material. So we're going to, we're going to get some guidance on why those redactions were made, but I think it will be very bad for America if the redactions are too extensive. And I think the DOJ knows that. So I'm hopeful that we're going to get the core of the report, that we're going to get the guts of the report. We're going to be able to know the vast majority of what uh, the special counsel's office knew. And David, let me ask you this. You know, when you go back to the star report with Bill Clinton, a lot of people said, did we need to know all the super specific sexual details we got out of that? Was that really important for everybody to know or was that salacious and was it a way to try to hurt somebody politically? And could you ask the same things if there's information in this report that has nothing to do with any law breaking or collusion with Russia or anything else, but is damaging or, you know, uh, 
very detailed in some lurid ways. Do we need to know that? Is that something that we should have out on a president that either way, whether it was Bill Clinton or Donald Trump? Well, you know, in the Clinton scandal, let's remember, it was just salacious from the beginning. <laughs> this was, it was, a sex, it was a sex scandal. You know, it was a, it was a scandal about sexual activity in the Oval Office. And if you've ever been involved in a sexual harassment case um, or involved in a criminal sexual assault case, uh, then you know that the details are salacious. I mean, they, they're out there. I mean, mm-hmm. the way that this came about with Bill Clinton was he lied under oath in a sexual, he, he, you know, he really truly got into trouble for lying under oath in a sexual harassment deposition. Yeah. So, so this is something, you know, I think that if you're saying, okay, here, here we have an investigation and what is the topic of the investigation in that circumstance it was a sex scandal that he lied about under oath and efforts to obstruct justice in the sex scandal. And I think providing information about what occurred and did not occur was core to that report. In this instance, we have the topic is different. So for example, if you had salacious sex details about a case involving obstruction of justice and alleged Russian collusion, that's kind of extraneous <laughs> right. to, the re- to the report. But if it is Involving embarrassing information, if there's embarrassing information and involving the facts relevant to the investigation, well, then that's a different thing. So, you know, I I think that, you know, this is a this is a controversy that has divided Americans deeply, where Americans are often operating under completely different sets of factual assumptions Absolutely. And so the, the more facts that we can get into the public square, so at the very least, we're operating under a similar set of facts, I think the better. But of course, if there's extraneous stuff that's not related to the underlying investigation itself, well, you know, then, you know, I don't have any problem with uh, redacting that kind of information. But everything that is related to the core of the investigation itself, I think, American people should see just as they saw with the star report. I, I would hate, uh, you know, one of the things we see a lot of, we see a lot of hypocrisy these days in politics. Yeah. And, yes, we do. and there were Republicans who very much wanted to see everything that they possibly could about Bill Clinton. And then some Republicans are now saying we want to see as little as possible about Donald Trump. <laughs> and I, I, I just don't buy that. Now, here's the thing where I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. everything you said there now. Let's say there are big sections of this report that are negative about President Trump, but they really had nothing to do with the underlying investigation. There's some because, you know, there's a lot of rumors out there about the president. Let's say some of that stuff's in there. And so Attorney General Barr agrees with you and says, you know what, this really doesn't have anything to do with it. We're going to redact that. You know, everybody on the left is going to say, aha. Those redactions are what we really need. And therefore, Barr is an agent of Trump and hid things. I mean, it's well, kind of. It would surprise me if there's big sections of the special counsel's report that are completely extraneous to the subject of the investigation. That would that would really surprise me Um, there. You know, there might be some sections dedicated to investigations of some of the salacious uh, allegations in the Steele dossier. Mm -hmm. Um, That's possible. Uh, But if those are if those salacious allegations in the steel, those salacious allegations, in the Steele dossier are relevant. (laughs) So to the underlying investigation. Um, so this is I, it would really surprise me if, you know, there was anything in there, because remember, when he came across information, when the special counsel came across information extraneous to his investigation, 
he referred that to outside prosecutors. So, you know, he referred to the Southern District of New York, the things that he found out uh, about Michael Cohen. And so that, that kind of thing, he already has established past practice that when he comes across um, information that's extraneous to the core of his mission, he's, he refers that outside. Gotcha. Okay. So last question on this, put on your little prediction hat. Do you think there's going to be anything in there that's going to make people say, holy cow, um, Attorney General Barr lied about this and there really is collusion or anything huge that's going to come out of this tomorrow? Um, I I will say this, uh, and I would, uh, and I feel pretty darn confident that you're going to have tomorrow multiple people saying that Barr was wrong, that Trump did commit obstruction of justice, that Mm -hmm. there will be. Because there are a lot of people who think that already the evidence in the public domain indicates that he did. I disagree with that. I think that the evidence in the public domain is sufficiently damaging to want to trigger additional investigation. And I said that even two years ago. But as far as is there evidence in the public domain sufficient to constitute evidence of obstruction of justice, I've said, no, I don't think so. But if there's anything in addition to evidence in the public domain that goes beyond what we already know, you are going to see an avalanche of think pieces saying that Barr covered this, you know, that Barr uh, did a favor for the president. And I'm, ve- I'm skeptical of that. I'm very skeptical that Barr would put his reputation, and, and let's not forget it wasn't just Barr, but it was Rod Rosenstein who also concurred in the, the conclusion that there was no obstruction. And right. Rosenstein's the guy who appointed the special counsel. I mean, nobody's sitting here saying that he's been in Trump's back pocket all the time. So uh, it would surprise me if there was sufficient additional evidence of obstruction to make a conclusive case against the president. It would also surprise me if there isn't sufficient additional evidence that it's going to cause an awful lot of people, of course, primarily on the left to say, oh, yeah, he he did obstruct and Barr is protecting it. Gotcha. It'll be interesting. That's for sure. And I, yes. I, I totally agree with your prediction that there will be people, no matter what comes out tomorrow, claiming that Trump obstructed justice. I mean, because some people, they believe it no matter what. It's not going to well, matter. Yeah. Yes. They, they've already said he did. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. They've made up their so, mind. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. That's martini number one. Moving on to martini number two, not even a little bit tipsy yet. We're going <laughs> to talk about uh, what writer Talia uh, Lavin has written now. She has a little piece in the Washington Post, and it's about how some people have reacted to the fire in Notre Dame. And she gets a little out there and goes after Ben Shapiro. Get this. Let's let me just give a little setup for this, David, for you to comment on it, because I know you wrote a little bit about this. Here's a little setup from from uh, Talia Lavin. Many figures on the right took the opportunity to turn Notre Dame into a metonym for Western civilization as a whole, intimating that far more than a cathedral was in peril. Just as the fire hit social media, conspiracy theorist and brain supplement salesman Mike Cernovich dramatically tweeted that. The West has fallen. Shortly thereafter, fast-talking, far-right pundit Ben Shapiro called Notre Dame a monument to Western civilization and Judeo-Christian heritage. Given the already raging rumors about potential Muslim involvement, these tweets evoke the specter of a war between Islam and the West that is already part of numerous far-right narratives. So, wait a second. So, Ben Shapiro saying that 
Notre Dame is a monument to Western civilization is trying to start a war? This is, this is nuts. I mean, this, this is the first tweet she's referring to. I'm going to quote Ben's tweet in its entirety. Ben says, absolutely heartbreaking, a magnificent monument to Western civilization collapsing. You know what? That's true. It is true. true. It is true. And then a, a um, Sanders, a, a Bernie Sanders staffer tweets back at him after he says that. Pretty sure it's a monument to God, but go off, Ben. By the way, if you're not on Twitter, stay off it. Oh, man. <laughs> I have to be on it for my job, and I regret it every day. Right. But it's a monument Ben's, to both, isn't it? I mean, yes, it's a monument to God, but it's also Western civilization that built it. Yeah. And Ben says it is a monument to God. And that is why it is a central monument to Western civilization, which was built on the Judeo-Christian heritage. Again, true. Again, yep. true. That's so true. You know what? But what's particularly pernicious about this article is Ben trafficked in no conspiracy theorists theories when the when Notre Dame was burning. He he said he all he did is he paid tribute to it. He paid tribute to it. Ben is an Orthodox Jew, and this is an act of actually tolerance for him because the history of the French Catholic Church is shot through with an awful lot of anti-Semitism. It's one of the stains on the French history of the French Catholic Church, and yet he's paying tribute to a French Catholic cathedral. This is a good thing. This is an act of tolerance. This is an act of religious uh, pluralism and and he was getting com- and people are in this Tali Alavin is saying that he was evoking a war between Islam and the West. This is nuts. You know, it's the kind of nuts comment you expect to see in somebody's Twitter mentions or a second rate comment board. Uh, it is not what you expect to see in the pages of the Washington Post. But you know, Lavin has kind of a checkered history already. I mean, she was she resigned from from being a fact checker at the New Yorker after falsely suggesting that a combat wounded former Marine had a fascist iron cross tattoo when it was actually, it was actually the tattoo of his unit that he served, that he deployed with. And so, um, and, and this was a guy who was severely disabled in combat. And so, um, she apparently failed upward into the pages of the Washington post where she, printed a completely fact-free assertion. Uh, and this is somebody who actually, if you went to her Twitter page, she glories in her identity as a troll. And what I, what, look, trolls are going to troll. Um, but the Washington Post doesn't have to give trolls space. And but you know, here's, David, I think that's, I, I think you're hitting on something big here. Have you noticed what, like you said, what used to be crazy talk on Twitter or really base talk on Twitter, really angry, divisive talk on Twitter gets you a lot of followers. And as you get more and more followers, you get noticed in bigger and bigger venues. And it seems like now more mainstream outlets are grabbing people that have these followers so they can get clicks and they don't seem to care that their tone is awful and quite often fact-free, as you mentioned. Uh, They had to fire somebody off MSNBC for the stuff he was saying about Israel recently. I mean, and it sounded like conspiracy stuff off Twitter. It's happening. Well, here's, here's what's particularly pernicious about it. If you read her whole piece, she's taking on the conspiracy theorists who, 
did spread crazy conspiracy theories or uh, irresponsible irresponsible speculation during the fire. So she talks about Alex the info war. She talks about info oh, war. Yeah. She talks yeah, about yeah. this person, Katie Hopkins. Um, she talks about other people who are legit, legitimately bad and who said legitimately bad things. But then she sneaks Ben Shapiro in there. And this is one of the things that um, a lot of conservatives have been talking about for a long time is that when when people on the left say, oh, well, all I want to do is take on fascists. I'm taking on fascists. You'll notice that they will they'll take on like genuinely bad people. And then they'll always sneak in or frequently sneak in somebody who's much more mainstream, who's a mainstream conservative. In this case, you know, she's sneaking in somebody who has actually taken on these conspiracy theorists, who's actually rejected the alt-right so thoroughly that Ben has to have full-time security to protect himself yeah. from these same kinds of forces that she's now aligning Ben with. This is a really irresponsible and gross smear. It is grotesque. And the Washington Post should be ashamed, just ashamed of itself for printing it. I agree. And it's kind of what a lot of people on the far left uh, and, and Antifa and others have done. They're trying to conflate everybody who is conservative with fascism and Nazism. And it's working for a lot of people on the left. A lot of the young people now, if you say you're Republican and conservative, they automatically say you're a fascist and a Nazi as if that has anything in common with the other. But that is what's going on. And it is working. They are conflating it quite a bit. Yeah, it's like, you know, I'm reading along. Alex Jones, terrible. Got it. Richard Spencer, awful. Got it. The, the Christchurch, New Zealand shooter, terrible. Got it. Ben Shapiro, wait, what? Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> what are you talking about? But that's the level of hate we're dealing with here. Hey, while we're on Notre Dame, let's move on to martini number three. And what is going to happen next? I mean, now we still got the fallout of figuring out how did this all start? There was a, an alarm went off 23 minutes before uh, another alarm, and maybe they could have saved it earlier. Well, sorry, that's over now. Can't do anything about that. Uh, thankfully, they saved a lot of very important religious uh, relics. Uh, the whole thing is not gone, but there's an awful lot of rebuilding to do. And there's a question from the Rolling Stone magazine. Can you trust the French to rebuild Notre Dame? <laughs> you know, uh, first, man, I, I think we're all grateful for how much of Notre Dame still stands. I mean, when we saw that fire raging at its height, I thought, you know, when I wake up the next morning, all that's going to be left is sort of this just a mere shell of the place, sort of like a bombed out building from World War II. But instead, you know, a huge parts of the interior were largely preserved. Many of the stained glass windows, as you said, the relics were preserved. And, you know, then there was this incredible outpouring of support. I think there's almost been a billion euros raised already to rebuild it. And, and uh, Macron has said he wants to do it in five years, which is amazing if they could pull it off. But then there's this other thing that makes me a little bit nervous. Uh, Rolling Stone story sort of talking about how, wait, you know, this is an architectural moment when maybe they can do something that's more reflective of the modern, more secular France. And then, and then you've got the, then you've got this uh, announced the creation of an international architecture competition to replace the 19th century spire that collapsed in the blaze. Oh no. I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, Okay, come on, guys. Um, you know, because the French can make 
beautiful, beautiful, beautiful things. And then they can also make <laughs> some things that you just scratch your head and say, what? And, and you cannot, and I, hopefully the Catholic church will, will put its foot down here and preserve the essential, essential and fundamental aesthetic of the cathedral and it won't be taken as an opportunity to do something um a little strange or a little weird or something that secularizes the place because it is after all and it is after all a cathedral it is after all a church it is a it is a working church it is a church where people worship god and so i i'm i'm hopeful that this will be remembered I'm a little bit nervous that there will be to, uh, some pressure to secularize it somewhat. And, I, and I, I hope the people of France resist. I hope the French Catholics resist. Um, but I, I would be lying if I didn't say I was a little bit nervous by this. Well, when you look at the problems that they're having in France, especially in Paris and the suburbs with uh, their Muslim population, uh, you're you're absolutely right that some people are going to say this is a way that we can reach out with an olive branch and try and blend and make it interfaith and all that. kind. But wow, until I, I started reading this, uh, there was nothing in my brain, David, and maybe I'm just weird. There was nothing in my brain that even had a thought that it wouldn't be rebuilt exactly the way it was. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a little bit more cynical than you. As soon as I heard that uh, most of it survived and they were going to rebuild, I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> I had that little, I had that small voice in me that said, uh-oh. It's and, just so you know, iconic. It's like uh, if the Eiffel Tower was partially destroyed, are you going to build a skyscraper there? No, you're going to put the Eiffel Tower back exactly the way it is. I I, I just can't imagine you wouldn't. It, it was so iconic and beautiful and, and in so many movies and art pieces of art and everything else. And people go to France, specifically people go just to see that. And you're going to change it? Well, you know, France's prime minister, Edouard Philippe, said, uh, you know, one thing he said, which is great. He said, this is a huge challenge. It's a historic responsibility. I love that phrase, historic responsibility. Yep. Mm -hmm. But then he said that the new design would have to be adapted to technologies and challenges of our times. Huh. Now, I get the adapted to technologies because from what I understand, and I'm sure some listeners could uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that we don't we don't know some of the building techniques that were used. Uh, those they're lost to time. Some of the building techniques that were used used to build the structures that were destroyed in the fire. Um, and so, yeah, obviously we'll have to use our contemporary technology to rebuild these things uh, as to you know as close to to the original as we can. Mm -hmm. um, but what does it mean by challenges of our times? It's a interesting phrase. So. You know, I, again, I'm mostly hopeful. I'm 90% hopeful, maybe 95% hopeful, but I'm five to 10% nervous uh, that, you know, but again, I mean, look, this is, I'm an American. This is not, uh, I'm not a member of the French Catholic Church. This is not my cathedral, but right. I think so many people in the world feel a sense of connection to it. And I would hate, I would hate to see the rebuilt cathedral depart in any material way from the nature and spirit of the original. Well, maybe they can get it built faster than we built. We rebuilt the world trade center. We will keep an eye on it and see how long it takes. And hopefully it'll be 
beautiful as always. David, it was great to talk with you. We will do it again tomorrow. This is the three martini lunch. Thanks for being with us.